Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Next week, State Farm faces off in court against a class of 4.7 million policyholders who say the insurance giant went to some crazy lengths to avoid paying out a billion-dollar judgment. According to the customers, State Farm secretly spent millions to get a judge elected to the Illinois Supreme Court to overturn the verdict. A little later in the show, we'll be joined by reporter Cara Salvatore, who's gearing up to cover the big trial. And stick around to the end of the show, where we discuss how things really are bigger in Texas, even outlandish judicial opinions. As always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey! Guys! Oh, you, you finished it <laughs> Nice, very good. Great, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Huh. So what's going on? Anything uh, cool? I'm a little, I'm a little pooped. Uh, we, we, fantasy draft week. Um, yeah, football's so coming you up. Know, staying up late, things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been, I'm, I'm enjoying a very peaceful and relaxing retirement for fantasy football. It was a whirlwind decade plus there for me. Hung up the, Guys, uh, I normally hung up have, the fingers. That's right. I normally yeah. have nothing to contribute to sports talk. Yeah. Or sport talk as it right. as sporting it were. affairs. Yeah, uh, with Amber. but sport in a pastime. So my husband is in a fantasy league with a lot of our friends in DC. We lived there for many years. Right. Uh-huh. I have never participated because the aforementioned we, not, right. that's, no that's, sport. That's, that's that's canon now. Um, but I have been I don't know drafted, if you will, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> to be the official spokesman for my husband's fantasy team within the league. What What does that entail? Yeah. Uh, basically, it means this. Every year, um, the commissioner of this league puts together a lot of really clever and fun things, because we're all friends, uh, to send out through the year. And one of them, to announce the draft order, uh, they put together this video of each team, and they're all themed. So like one year, the video was themed about Game of Thrones, and um, Andrew showed up uh, as Littlefinger in (laughs) that one. This this year, it was Star Wars themed, and you get one guess about who he was in that one. Uh... Oh, if he was Littlefinger in that, uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. I mean, was he Grand Moff Tarkin? <laughs> he, he, in fact, was Darth Vader. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so, you know, it just give you a vibe of, like, Grand his standing in the league. Yeah. So, essentially, I'm there to polish up and do a little PR. This for, is for his fantasy league. this is make make it all seem a little so better. much more than the communication yeah. effort that goes into that, the league, <laughs> which is like just the, the sort of like borderline offensive emails sent like with no punctuation. Hey, you're like the you're like the Greg Aiello, like the 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 NFL scuzzy PR guy. Somebody compared me to the Kellyanne Conway, and that one really Oof, hit me okay. in the feels. So you know, big um, Eagles yeah. fan, Kellyanne. Yeah, yeah it's true. <laughs> Pride right of South Jersey. So basically, yeah. I'm, Conway. I'm trying to make sure people actually stay friends with Andrew. Um, Despite anything he does in this league, <laughs> okay, and that and that um, he maybe gets a little better success with some of the trades he proposes to people because they don't go over super well. Wow, Amber subtweeting her husband right now on <laughs> fantasy sports, I and love he listens it. to Questioning the podcast. His digital Hell GM yeah. skills. Hell uh, yeah. Hey, he listens to the podcast. This won't be a secret, <laughs> cool. and he knows my role here on his team. Love so. it. Nice. All right, let's get to the news. Yeah. Um. Let's first off. There was a lot of stuff with Trump's. Uh, judicial nominees. Uh, mm-hmm. There sort of always is. Yeah. But it's, um, I don't know, this week gives us a good time to sort of dip back in. We haven't talked about it in a while. Because um, it's sort of like the Trump administration is obviously dysfunctional for all sorts of reasons. Um, yeah. But the judicial nomination process has been sort of one of the things that's been kind of a well-oiled machine for them. Do you know what wave we're on now? I think it was 14. Okay, yeah, I, that sounds right. I know. I, I, the... Alex is alluding to the fact that when they release <laughs> these press releases saying that they're nominating more people, they refer to them as waves. Like, And it's starting to be like Super Bowls where <laughs> yeah. they're like, yep. like, I know. 
it actually helps for journalists who have to cover like like you don't have to go back yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and 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 count anyway. Totally. So there's a new, so there's a new wave and there's new yeah, there drama was, going on. Yeah. So there were seven new judges uh, uh, confirmed this week, and there was some other crazy major sort of abrupt news that the you know the architect of this well-oiled machine um, mm-hmm. is leaving the administration fairly soon. All right. So yeah, big picture. Like you you alluded to it already, but like yeah. the we're about 18 months in. What is the sort of state of play of Trump and the judiciary? Yeah. Let's do some numbers. So Trump has appointed 60 um, judges thus far, 33 to the district courts, 26 to the appellate courts, and um, our boy, Neil Gorsuch. That's to, uh, a lot of judges. <laughs> Neil. Yeah. Um, so for context, uh, President Obama didn't get near these numbers until really the end of his first term. Right. So Trump right. And is, we're only talking like 18 months. And we're not even Trump. halfway through Trump. Yeah. So this is so he's well ahead of schedule. Um, you know, you see different terms thrown around, but a lot of people are saying it's historic. How many? How mm. many? <laughs> a lot of people are saying yeah, it's, I well, sound like Trump. Yeah, I was right? going to I, yeah. I, I gonna call you out, but you did it yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so it's true. And you do hear it more. And more. <laughs> you, you hear it more and more. People are saying um, so. <laughs> Already, uh, because of all those numbers, one in seven federal judges um, is a Trump nominee. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. One in seven. So it's it, crazy. Yeah. Um, and yeah. again, it depends on who you ask, but yeah. um, uh, some court watchers say that two of the circuit courts have already flipped, meaning like there are more judges nominated by Republicans that are conservative leaning yeah. than there are those nominated by Democrats that are liberal leaning. So. Mm-hmm. It's had a big impact, and it's going to have a big impact for years, no matter what happens in sort of the the short term politics. Um, and there's more on the way. On Monday, the administration announced its latest wave, and and um, you know that included judges for the ninth and the fourth circuit. So, more on the way. And we even saw some get approved this past week, right? Yeah, on Monday, um, sort of a controversial in liberal circles um, move by uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. He reached this deal with McConnell to. Fast track. Um, I think it was 15 uh, nominations. So seven of those went through on Monday for district judges in Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. And eight more are set for confirmation next week. With, and when we'll also have the the uh, the hearings beginning for Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. So yeah. next week will be a big one. But so um, the most interesting story out of this whole confirmation news this week was. Um, this story of Charles Barnes Goodwin, who was a Trump nominee for, um, an Oklahoma district court, uh, and, you know, had spent five years as a magistrate judge in the same court. And now Trump has nominated him to be, um, to be a federal district judge. Okay. So what makes that guy What's so interesting about that, Bill? (laughs) Great question, Alex. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) So Goodwin, we, we talked, uh, maybe a year ago now about the, um, this idea of that the American Bar Association was putting up sort of a fight to some right, of Trump's, yeah. more of Trump's nominees than any president before him have been deemed, quote, non-qualified by the American Bar Association. Ooh, Amber, do you know the episode number on that? Oh, guys, don't put me on the spot. I don't know every, I mean, every now and then I get to pull that out, but. No, we'll we'll remember. loop it back in and post. Okay, go ahead, Bill. <laughs> so Goodwin got this qualification over his work habits, um, which is something we haven't seen. We've seen controversial writings. Yeah, we've yeah, seen yeah. Weird, we, we, weird see, message board behavior. We've also um, seen people that just hadn't been um, lawyers very long, like yes, stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Um, so according to the ABA, Goodwin um, was frequently absent from the courthouse when he was a magistrate judge until mid-afternoon. 
which the group said, quote, raised doubt with respect to his ability to fulfill the demands of a federal judge. Okay. Uh, the ABA also said that, quote, <laughs> um, uh, inaccessibility in issues generated concerns about the timely and efficient administration of justice. Uh, do we know how huh. old this guy is? Unclear. Okay. Because um, he sounds, I mean, he sounds like a millennial. And uh, and, as an old, <laughs> and as an old millennial, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. Yeah. <laughs> so despite these concerns, Goodwin sneaked through okay. um, 52 to 42. Um, so, yeah. So, so we'll um, have to see if he shows up in chambers. Yeah, we'll yeah. Before noon. That. So we'll got, we've got, and, and then we've got more coming next week. So right. more confirmations are on the way. And then you mentioned the sort of last news item. There was a high profile departure yeah. from the White House that has to do with this. Right. Um, the architect of this whole operation, which... Um, there was a great, we've written about it, the, there was a great New York Times story this last week um, about that this is sort of the product of decades of planning by by conservative-leaning legal mm-hmm. groups like the Federal Society. Um, it's really been sort of a plan to to do this. Uh, so th- the architect of that, um, a former a member of the Federal Society, Donald McGahn, who is the, um, the White House counsel, he, uh, uh, Trump sort of abruptly this week announced that he would be that he'd be leaving. It's it's interesting in the context of that McGahn really has been sort of driving this effort that he um you know that he's other presidents have made these committees and, yeah. and it's been sort of a, a more broad based approach to it. And they've you know they've they've negotiated with senators from these home states. McGahn has really had a really sort of strong influence on it in a way that that um, White House counsels in the past have not. Apparently. And I, th- I think um, just the announcement of when he was leaving also sort of puts a button on how crucial he's been to these nominations to courts. Totally. He's not leaving until after this Kavanaugh stuff. He's going to stay until the Kavanaugh stuff. And it's also the timing that that timing is interesting, but also the timing of how when he's leaving, because it came out, I think it was last week or maybe two weeks ago that um McGahn has been sort of emerged as a major part of the Mueller investigation. Right. He sat yeah. for these 30 hours of of testimony to Mueller's team and the White House isn't quite sure exactly what he said. And and um, so it's interesting in that context too, um, to see what happens. But he'll be here, I guess, until the fall because um, they say that he's going to stay until the, the end of the Kavanaugh process. All right. So next up, we have a story about bribery. Don't worry, guys. It's still illegal. Good. But there has been that stuff. Yeah, there there were there was an interesting development in the Second Circuit today that has to do with the way that the government uh, will prosecute the bribery of foreign officials. These are bribes made by U.S. business persons to secure business overseas. I have to imagine there's a lot of that overseas. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it and we passed laws specifically to address that type of bribery that are different from our own domestic bribery laws. Right. And the decision out of the Second Circuit this week is basically going to make it um, harder. And it makes it harder by saying that those laws can only be used to prosecute people with some kind of concrete tie to the United States, as opposed to just casting out an international dragnet for anyone who makes or is involved in an illicit payment to a government official. Okay. Anytime we start talking about how U.S. law reaches out to other countries, I start to get a little confused. So let's dig into this area of the law. Tell us a little more about what happened here. Yeah. So the the law in question is called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and its terms are relatively simple. It just says it's illegal for U.S. persons or businesses to pay foreign officials for the purposes of obtaining or retaining business there. Um, but while that sounds simple enough, in practice, it's become very complicated, especially since, um, you know, 
we live in a global society right. now. We have a transnational ruling class exactly. in the world. Exactly. Right. Yeah, right. the law was passed in 1977, and multinational companies existed. But like you say, like everybody's got their tentacles <laughs> and everything, and all of this. I'm actually a resident of Macau. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> for tax purposes. Of yeah, it's your LLC. Right. It's not a big deal. Um, but in any case, um, because of that, businesses have have argued over various terms uh, in the application of this law for many years now, and the issue before the Second Circuit this week was whether or not, as I said, the government can reach outside its borders and bring charges against someone who is not a U.S. citizen and who never entered the United States during the course of a purported bribery scheme. So who was the person? The, yeah, the facts at issue here, um, there was a man named Lawrence Hoskins, and he um, is a British national who worked at um, a French rail company called Alstom. And they're a French company, but they're a multinational. They have a U.S. business unit and a unit elsewhere. Um, Alstom and several of its executives basically pled guilty a few years ago to bribing the government of Indonesia to win a contract there. Um, they eventually were fined $772 million. The fines for this statute get uh, incredibly high. Um, the other executives, uh, you know, were U.S.-based, and, and, and Hoskins was basically alleged to have been their conspirator in the United Kingdom to funnel these payments to the Indonesian government. So what, what, what was wrong, like what went wrong if the Second Circuit is finding yes. fault with that? Um, good question. So the thing is, the court had a problem with the way that the United States government was, just like I say, casting out this very wide net. With an international reach, there's always something called the nexus of a U.S. interest. And what that means is just whether or not the person who allegedly committed this crime is a citizen of the United States or conducted the crime within the United States. That right, that it, has to get you under the umbrella of yeah. the law. Because otherwise, the U.S. is just going... Uh, so broad. It could be anybody if there's not that nexus. Well, and you raise the prospect. You hear attorneys talk about this with extraterritorial Always. laws yeah. that there is the risk of other countries starting to do this to U.S. citizens. Right. So it, it raises all sorts of complications in, in really big pictures. Yeah. And they said the U.S. basically got too far over its skis by prosecuting Hoskins. This is a quote from the ruling. Uh, the FCPA, that's the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, as I mentioned. Uh, does not impose liability on a foreign national who is not an agent, employee, officer, director, shareholder of an American issuer or domestic concern unless that person commits a crime within the United States. So the government had tried to say that doesn't matter, that he never came in here or is not a national here. He is sort of a – he is abetting their illicit activity. He's part of a conspiracy can that I, whole thing. Can I ask you a question? How how long th – this isn't a new law, no. right? Like why why are we – this feels like a fairly basic question to be dealing with a law that I know is not to particularly new. Totally fair. Yeah, as I said, it's passed in 1977, but uh, if I can get a little professorial for two seconds about the history of the law. So basically, it's been on the books for more than 40 years, but only very recently has the government decided to start prosecuting individuals. For a long time, they were just fining uh, or they, they were prosecuting and fining corporate entities, uh, businesses. And, you know, in those circumstances, companies are – well often just be like, okay, well, like, you got us, we'll pay this fine, and we'll move on. Uh, 
The difference, of course, is that when you start prosecuting individuals, this is a federal crime and they have an incentive to not want to go to jail. Sure. All of this, all of what that means is that there just isn't a lot of case law over this law because it's just not been dragged into court very often. Um, and so there have, there have been a bunch of, over the last basically like 10 years, there's a bunch of like burgeoning legal battles over what the law means, who it applies to. Um, and this, on this specific issue of territorial reach, this is a setback for the government. Wait, so did our boy Larry Hoskins come to the U.S. for this trial? Or or was he tried in absentia or like... Oh, yeah. No, no. He was here yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. We, we have extradition trees with the UK, so it's a little right. different than when you just got hide it, out there. Got it, got it. I don't know if he was extradited off the top of my head, yeah. but he was there. Okay. Yeah. So you laid out for us how um, this hadn't really been tested a lot, and that's how we've gotten here with this ruling. Mm -hmm. What does that mean going forward? Because presumably the government, now that it's in the game of, of prosecuting individuals, it'll keep doing that. Yeah. So. I mean, the government just used to basically set the terms here without much pushback from anybody. Um, you know, it was just like, well, these are the people we're charging, you can accept the fine or you can try and fight us in court with this dearth of uh, case law and right. what any of this means. Go ahead and try it. Um, but now the, gover uh, the, the, the court, rather, the Second Circuit has raised the bar at least a little bit. They say, you know, you have to, they, they didn't say you're not allowed to prosecute Hoskins at all, but you have to, you have to make some effort to tie him to someone who has this kind of U.S. interest that we're talking yeah. about. You have to show that he's, you know, an agent for the U.S.-based executives. Like, he is playing a role at their behest or on their behalf to make these payments. Um, Stuart Bishop, who's been on the show before, he wrote a really interesting feature, if this is something that interests you, um, who said you might also see increased calls from the U.S. to call on their partners to enforce their own bribery laws, right. which is something that's popped up and as confusion over this law has popped up. It's like, you know, we don't have to do your work for you. If you enforce your own stuff, it's not our problem. Uh, there was one uh, stray opinion uh, from, the from the Second Circuit panel that said, um, you know, this is, this is so unclear that maybe Congress should step in and do something. Um, that old chestnut. Although, yeah, I mean, although that is that is particularly difficult when you're talking about this law, because whenever there is there's like always like piecemeal efforts to reform FCPA. And it's like you're literally asking us to make it easier. Totally. To, <laughs> right. to bribe foreign officials. Totally. So it's always DOA politically. But you never know. Anyway, it was mentioned. Um, but the point is, the big takeaway is that these problems aren't going away. Like I say, they're starting to prosecute, they're, they're ramping up prosecution of individuals, and we'll see if that includes prosecution of people who have never been here or foreign nationals. Uh, and if they do, we kind of know the terms of debate here, um, and it will crop up uh, in other contexts dealing with these bribery laws. On Tuesday, a class action trial kicks off, accusing State Farm of secretly spending millions to get a judge elected to the Illinois Supreme Court to help overturn a billion-dollar judgment against the company. To explain this wild case, we're joined today by Law360 reporter Cara Salvatore. Welcome, Cara. Thank you so much. So State Farm's accused of doing some pretty crazy stuff here. Can you give us sort of the overview of what went on? Oh, my gosh. So in the early 2000s, State Farm is facing this billion-dollar judgment. Mm -hmm. And it's it goes to the appeals court. The appeals court says, no problem, we affirm. Then it's going to go to the Supreme Court, the Illinois Supreme Court, because State Farm is like, there's no way we're paying this. And there's an open seat up for grabs on the Supreme Court. Right. This is like 2003. So allegedly, 
State Farm decides to pack the court with a judge who's going to be friendly to them and help get the judgment overturned. And in fact, that is what happens. <laughs> I mean, it's a crazy. It is it a crazy like a story. Plot. When we were when we were talking about whether to do this story, it it, it like. And we'll get into it, but th- this has been this has gone through court and, and like it has survived motions for summary judgment. It's yeah. not like a wacky handwritten complaint. Buying elections <laughs> is so often like and hyperbole or an exaggeration, right. but like that's like sort of what's squarely at right. issue here. So, okay, yeah. so let's rewind because that sort of set us up here. Uh, what what was this verdict that what was this this judgment against the company that that sort of set all of this in motion? Yeah, the billion dollar judgment came from a 1997 suit and a 1999 trial. Um, and it was basically 4.7 million policyholders said that State Farm didn't replace their crash parts, which are like doors and bumpers and body shop parts mm-hmm. with good replacement parts. They replaced mm-hmm. them with inferior aftermarket parts. Got it. So uh, it's essentially them saying they were cheaping out on all these repairs. Yes, exactly. So what was the final what was the final damages amount? So the final damages amount, this is really interesting. Um a jury heard the breach of contract side of it mm-hmm. and they awarded about four hundred million dollars on that. And then a judge heard the Illinois Consumer Fraud Act side and awarded the same amount, but it was duplicate, so that goes away. But then the judge also awarded $600 million in punitive damages. Okay, Okay, so they're appealing this case up, and what happens? Yeah, they start appealing it. It gets affirmed. It's trimmed slightly in Mm -hmm. the intermediate appeals court. Then they take it to the Illinois Supreme Court, and that's where it's sort of sitting there, and State Farm says, we have an opportunity to put somebody on this court who's going to help us get this overturned. And it sits in that court and sits in that court while this election is going on. Nobody really seems to know why it was sitting there. Right. Let's get into the nitty gritty of exactly what they're alleged to have do vis-a-vis this election. So you yeah. say they get there, there's a vacant seat, they want a friendly face on the seat. What is What apparently happens from there? So this guy, Ed Murnane, who was supposedly in cahoots with State Farm's people, handpicks uh, a judge called Lloyd Carmeyer, and he's going to be one of the first people to testify, um, and says, well, you run for this seat. He says, sure. At that point, State Farm starts giving money every which way to every organization that they can find right. that's in favor of tort reform, including the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the American Tort Reform Association, and then Murnane's group, the Illinois Civil Justice League. Those are the big three. So how much money are we talking about here? Supposedly, according to uh, an expert for the plaintiffs, it's something like $3.5 or $4 million that State Farm alone provided. How much can you trust expert reports? Right. I don't know. Yeah, sure. All of this is what they're going to talk about at the trial you're going to cover. But just to help us put that in perspective, um, was that a huge proportion of the money funneled into this election? It was 74% of the money that was spent (laughs) in this election. (laughs) That is helpful context. Yeah, (laughs) that really sets it up. So so they really had a, a very heavy hand in the outcome here. Yeah, I mean that's and, what that's what's being said. And he wins. And he wins. Right. And he gets up there and oh boy. And then the case moves forward. Well, the case moves forward. At first he decides he's not going to participate. This is all from a deposition that he gave. Okay, up. right. Uh he's not going to participate. Then it turns out the justices are deadlocked. So he's like, "Well, I'll just stick a toe in this water." And wow. he manages to convince <laughs> them to unanimously overturn it. Whew. Wild. 
I mean, it's the plot of a movie. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Okay, so this lawsuit gets filed. And sort of, could you give us the gist of, you know, because there, there, you know, there, there are scenarios where you would give to a to a person running for the Supreme Court. There's a lot of like yeah. dots that you have to connect here. So, what is the gist of what this lawsuit says was like the legal wrongdoing that they can sue over? The legal wrongdoing. This is where it gets really complicated because it's a RICO suit. So they're not trying to hold State Farm liable for any campaign finance violations. They're actually just saying that State Farm lied in two briefs that it submitted to the Illinois Supreme Court saying we had no involvement in this. And one was in 2005, one was in 2011. Those are the predicate acts. Right. Okay, wait. So there's no campaign finance violations. That $3.5 million, that's 74% of of the campaign money here, that's all fine? I mean, nobody's nobody's trying to argue that it's not. There is one expert for the plaintiffs who's arguing that it's not. But no matter what, State Farm is never going to be held liable for that. That's sort of one of my sources said that's window dressing. It just supposedly shows there was an association in fact, which is an important element of a RICO claim. Now, this is not aimed at what is the aim of, of the lawsuit? I mean, it's not aimed at unseating this this Supreme Court justice. It's not like what so what what do what do the plaintiffs hope to accomplish here? Well, I think they want their billion dollars back. <laughs> uh they also want another one point eight billion for post judgment interest. Yeah. Wow. And then they want to triple all of that under Rico. Holy smokes. This this is I mean it's so huge. It almost turns into becoming comical on some level. It's like the numbers are just so big. It's it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. One of my sources, again, said it's like funny money. This means yeah. nothing to a jury. Well, and and uh, we mentioned it up top, but, but I mean, as we were talking about whether to do this story on the show, you see stories like this. You see cases like this that are filed and that have allege these conspiracies sure. between judges and yeah. everything else. But they don't usually make it this far. They don't make it to trial. I mean, this, this right? Like, t- talk to us. This made it through a motion for summary judgment, right? It did. And, you know, the judge basically said there are a ton of facts still in dispute. I think State Farm is going to argue at trial that every single one of the links in this RICO chain is broken. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they can get even one, they're in great shape. Right. Uh, so I, I think they're, you know... They're going to have a good chance to do that. Um, well, let's dig a little deeper into that. So what exactly are is this huge class of plaintiffs going to have to prove to keep State Farm on the hook here? And then maybe we can also break down a little bit about what you expect State Farm to say about how that's all bogus. There are a lot of emails and memos that are going to be shown about communications between State Farms people, State Farm CEO Ed Rust, the chair of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Tom Donahue, and it's trying to show that all these people were talking together and working together and that when State Farm would, you know, give the U.S. Chamber of Commerce $500,000, like at some point later, the ICJL would receive $500,000. Right. But are they going to have to prove that any of these groups, uh, including State Farm, actually said things like, because we hope to get that verdict overturned. <laughs> or is this squishier than that? Good luck, Amber. Yeah. <laughs> this is a case all about circumstantial evidence. Right. And it's, it's going to be up to the jury to just take that inference and run with it. Because there's, I mean, in a case like this, there's never going to be anybody going, 
Here are the nefarious ends. About that, that I judge hope thing that I talked to you about before with the thing. I don't know, guys. This one has big numbers and a crazy plot. So I'm I'm keeping my fingers crossed for some smoking gun that gets revealed at trial, Kara. Ooh, I love smoking guns. Good luck. <laughs> so what is State Farm going to say? Just that this is none of this is illegal, that they were just donating to a campaign in a legal way? Is that their basic argument? I mean, they're going to say that the plaintiffs are just reaching. They're going to say there's no association. These people were not working together. They weren't creating a mafia. They weren't creating a bank robbery ring. They were just people doing business. Right. The things we normally associate with Rico. The the, <laughs> the idea of like a, a yeah. of like the mafia. I mean, it's what Yeah, what because people think of it as like the gangster law. Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Kara, what kind of story do you think that um, these plaintiffs are going to have to advance to get the jury on their side? I mean, I think that they're going to make a, an argument that State Farm was able to spend three or four million dollars and get a return on investment of a billion dollars. And that's yeah. an argument anybody can understand and get pissed off about. Can't wait to see how this turns out in court. And everybody should check out Law360.com when, for all your stories next week. When does the trial kick off? On Tuesday. Keep an eye out. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And like I said up top, we're taking it to Texas. Bill, what are we talking about? Yeah, this is pretty offbeat. Um, although our main story was pretty crazy too. So it was. It's, it's true. It's really. It's a show sort of, of staying, joy today. Staying in Lots the same nuts. beat. It's relatively not too offbeat. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we're talking about a U.S. federal judge this okay. week. Um, his name's Fred Beery. Um, quite the character. He uh, he sort of popped on everybody's radar. L- I, it was either last week or two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, he issued this order where he threatened to make opposing attorneys kiss one another at the Alamo. Yeah, well, it wasn't very Texas there, very they, Texas choice. Well, they were being like rambunctious or something, right? Or, yeah, or they were just kind of getting out of they were getting out over their skis, and the way they were arguing the case, and he was like, "Hang on, I think that's our second getting out over their skis <laughs> of the oh, show." Yeah, well, um, so I have crutches; they're shaped like skis. I don't it's know. um, it was it was an it was a status conference order, and it, which are normally pretty boring. Okay, wait, but that also means it was probably really short. He managed to. Yeah. This in? So there's some highlights. Um, he advised both sides to avoid, quote, Rambo tactics and make time sure. for, quote, ear space rather than texting or emailing each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this is the more the fuller version of the Alamo thing. He threatened to make the attorneys sit in time out in the court's rotunda or kiss each other, quote, on the lips in front of the Alamo with cameras present. And yeah. quote, if they failed to comply. He said the, quote, timeout sanction had been imposed in past litigation and that the Alamo kiss had been threatened in the past. Just a final note, he made a number of Star Wars and Elvis references throughout the uh, Star Wars order. and Elvis. You see, my, That's yeah. an unusual cross-section. Yeah, yep. my, my, my thing is always just like, a, a, as we've said before, like I really, I enjoy anything that kind of like lightens up the that what can be kind of yeah. a, a morass of dull legal sure. writing. But like- I do appreciate a theme, not just like I know, sure. throw Rambo and Star Wars and Elvis. This is not. It's like a Bill Simmons column. So it's this like, wasn't this this was <laughs> this is a theme for him uh, doing this kind of thing. Yeah, this has been sort of his career trademark. Uh, Emma Cueto, one of our reporters here, dug into it a little bit deeper, uh, interviewed him, read through a bunch of his old opinions, and um, 
Uh, there's a lot of weird ones. Um, I can't wait for this. So there was a 2013 decision um, in a dispute over a rule that would have required female performers in strip clubs to wear bikini tops. Um, he titled the ruling, quote, the case of the itsy bitsy teeny weeny bikini top v the in parentheses more itsy bitsy teeny weeny pasty. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, in the same ruling, he referenced Shakespeare saying to bear or not to bear. That is the question. Uh, See, this bugs me. I have like OCD about this stuff. He somewhat provocatively asked, does size matter? Uh, And then he paused to remember, (laughs) this is from Emma's story. He paused to remember the renowned local performer, Miss Wiggles. What? What? (laughs) No. Local performer. Sort of troubling. So there's more. There are more. Uh, In 2011, he included more than two dozen references to sources as varied as the Bible Mission Impossible, Charles Dickens, Greek mythology, and Star Trek. Uh, okay, this is going to make Alex's head explode. That's too many references too many, to references. too many different things. And I love making references, but like for the sake of writing. I, Which Mission Impossible do you think I just a love to? a theme. Uh, I mean, I I don't, this is but it was border, the first one. Border, it was the classic. Well, no, That's this is borderline was. ageist, but I mean, if he's on the older side, I'm thinking yeah. he might just be referring to the television show. Wow. I mean, I don't know that. That's a guess. We don't know the age of this guy, though, so. I'd love to, um, well, I... Again, I don't want to venture. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> let's say let's say it was Ghost Protocol because that was sure. in 2011 when that movie came out. Sure. So Ghost Pro's. The next year, in 2012, he issued a an order titled a non kumbaya order that said, "quote The court does not expect the parties to hold hands and sing kumbaya beside the Medina River." Amber, wow. what year What year in law school do you learn about drafting non-kumbaya orders? <laughs> mm, that's a 2L thing, I'd okay, say. Okay, all right, right. fine. Sound, sounds right. I think the best one that I found in this, in this story was um, it was a case involving the Paul Revere Insurance Company, which is a thing. Oh, here we go. Named for the famed horseback rider yeah. who alerted the countryside of Massachusetts the re- that the Redcoats were coming. And then he was like, Paul Revere rode in on a TIE fighter and <laughs> bombed the Hoth base. Sorry. What did he say? Listen, you lawyers, and you shall hear of the disability policies of Paul Revere. Oh. Aww. See, that's nice. See, that one, I, that's, I like that one, actually. Okay, we hit on this earlier, but this is something that we've talked about on the show. Is this... Like a cool teacher, fun, cute thing? Or is this just like really annoying and beneath the stature of a federal judge? I float mm. between those two positions and never land anywhere in between. I am I'm of one or the other at any given time. I feel like when you have this volume of it, to me, it becomes excessive. Like I like it sparingly. Choose your moment. Yeah. Right. Like if, if there's, if there's, I think if there's like a really pertinent like thing to reference in your... Do you think like he's he's like a comedian where they keep like a little notebook of like they're living their life Ugh. and they think of funny the guy, things? The guy's a friggin' like prop keeping... comic. Like he... No, I mean I feel like he's probably like, oh, you know, it would be great. I, I'm gonna reference um that poem about Paul Revere at yeah. some point. Like I think he's like keeping a list. I did a little reporting on this myself. Instead of a gavel, he uses a rubber chicken. <laughs> no, 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 no. He uses the Gallagher uh, hammers. <laughs> oh, right, and he blows the uh, up sure. There right. we go. Yeah. So. <laughs> Sort of on this front, Emma talked to Beery himself and to some of the folks who have um, tried cases in his courtroom. Um, the judge said that he views it as a way to like alleviate the monotony of court rulings and to yeah. make his writings more accessible. Um, there was a good quote from the story that, um, quote, 
Laughter is good medicine and relieves the stress of practicing and studying law. Also, it makes the law more inter- interesting and readable for the general public, which I get. He's to a not wrong. Extent. I mean, right. that's true. I mean, I mean, we're sitting here yeah. talking about it. Yeah, I mean, so. I don't know if this makes the law more readable. It makes right. his little, uh, but yeah, I yeah, mean, sure. it's, a, it's a it's a fair point. Yeah, and Emma talked to an attorney who had uh, tried cases in front of him, and he said that he was very fair and compassionate to everyone's, you know. So I that's what's most important. I mean, right. writing is only one part of the job. I mean, totally, it's an important part. But um, yes. so let's keep an eye out for some more Judge Beery references. A- absolutely, and, uh, we better end the show before you guys have to go off- kiss in front of the Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> off Beery, that, I don't off do it. I think right. Nice. Yeah. All right. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Cara Salvatore. Our contributing reporters, Diana Novak-Jones, Stuart Bishop, Emma Cueto, Abe Rico, Brian Koenig, and Jimmy Hoover. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. And we talked about a bunch of stuff on today's show, so if you want to check out anything we discussed, go to our website, law360.com slash podcast. And please leave us a review. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and see you next week.